Who says tech can't be human? Pick an area and then find mentorship in that and try to focus for a couple years on a particular area. You can always change your mind later on, just like degrees, just like training programs, but it's going to help you a lot to focus for a little while. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. If you or your team is considering a strong partner to help with pen testing, check out NetSpy. For over 20 years, NetSpy has offered the most comprehensive suite of offensive security solutions, attack surface management, penetration testing as a service, and breach and attack simulation. Visit netspy.com forward slash HBM to learn more. That's netspi.com forward slash HBM. Thank you, Nespy, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again in the studio today. We brought with us big guests, a guest that was actually recognized and awarded Hacker of the Year at DEF CON 2020. Our guest this episode is Leslie Carhart. Leslie is the Director of Incident Response at Dragos and someone that we've been looking so forward to speaking to. Leslie, glad we made it to happen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting. First, I have to commend you on everything you've done for the community. In fact, personal story of mine, I think it was around maybe 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, when I found some of the stuff that you were putting out into the world. In fact, your article on studying for SANS exams, I used that to prepare for my GCIH. So first of all, thank you so much for everything that you've done and you continue to do for our community. It's a huge privilege to be part of the community, and I always like to try to give back. So thank you so much. Absolutely. The thing that really just completely outside of the cybersecurity arena, we have to bring Leslie on to talk about it, is this journey that you're going through with martial arts. It looks like you're going through some really rigorous evaluations and you're going to have to stand in front of a board to talk about your life's work in martial arts. How did all of that come to be? Did you start martial arts when you were younger? Did you start it later in life? And then how did you get to the point where you're going through such a rigorous process today? I guess there's two types of people in the world. There's the overachievers and the people who do things in the normal, sane way. But I didn't start martial arts as a kid. I started in my 20s. It was something that I had always wanted to do because I love the history of martial arts and martial arts movies and things like that. And I found a good school with a friend and they offered a style that I really had wanted to learn for a long time. So that was a form of Arnis or Eskrima. I started and then I pick up one martial art after another. Once it's like getting tattoos or piercings or something, you start one and then you're like, hey, I want to learn more about this. And I want to learn how a different style does things. And I want to be a white belt again because that's fun. It's easy. I've been picking up martial arts since then. And I have this pipe dream where I'd love to start my own school someday. It's incredibly expensive and out of reach. But yeah, that's something I'd like to do someday. It'd be pretty cool. So I've been studying and trying to get certifications with that goal in the back of my mind for some time now. 
I love that. And whenever I mention martial arts to Chris, he always lights up like a Christmas tree. He's been trying <laughs> to get me to do jujitsu for quite some time, but I took the easy road and I did <laughs> Tai Chi. I felt like it was very good for my 30-year-old body compared to getting hit. But I got to ask, this has happened to me when I started my Tai Chi journey, which I'm sure is very different than the martial arts that you're doing. But I got control of my breathing, especially in extreme or what I feel like maybe dangerous, compromising situations like a breach or a tough conversation. But just through focusing on my breath, I see a lot of things change in my day-to-day life, especially my work. What has been the aspect of martial arts that you've brought in the most to your work? First of all, Tai Chi is really hard. Mm -hmm. So good on you. Tai Chi (laughs) is a very difficult martial art to master because you're slowing down a style, which is incredibly complicated. You've got to get every motion right and stuff. So huge kudos to you about studying Tai Chi. That's awesome. That's something a lot of people don't take on until they're older. Things that I learned from martial arts, perseverance is one of them. Just those moments of things that you think that are absolutely impossible, but you just have to fight your way through. And that's how you really reach the next level in martial arts is just doing things that you thought weren't possible. And I've always been that kind of person, but it's really struck home in martial arts. You see it all the time. You just have to manage to find a way to stick with it and get through the challenge that's presented to you. If you have a good instructor, they're never going to give you something that is impossible to do. There's always a way to do it. You just have to find it mental ability and your mental perseverance to get through these intense physical challenges. So that's part of it. And then the other thing is how to teach. I don't have kids. I've never had kids, never wanted them, but I found that I love to teach kids. I love working with them. I teach middle schoolers right now martial arts and I mentor them. And I really enjoy that. Teaching during the pandemic over Zoom, martial arts especially, was incredibly challenging. And it taught me a lot about how to teach topics and instruct people in complex tasks in different ways. And then deal with the mental stresses that people, especially young kids, were going through during the height of the pandemic and lockdown and things like that. So I've taken a lot of lessons about dealing with people and teaching people, instructing them from martial arts. And I use them all the time in my daily life now. You are a triple OG when it comes to creating content for cybersecurity practitioners. How did that really start for you? Because it seemed like you were documenting your journey and you're like, hey, if this helped me, it seems like it might help other folks. And it just seemed it snowballed from there. What was that journey like for you? I couldn't find a mentor when I wanted to get into it. Not a really glamorous story. I couldn't find a mentor when I wanted to get into cybersecurity. I wanted to do digital forensics in the 90s and nobody would help me. Nobody would actually take me seriously and give me a shot. So, of course, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. That's crazy. Everybody should have a chance to get into cybersecurity if it's something they want to do. Like, we need people and we need people who want to do the job. So, what are we doing? So, that's why I create content and I run clinics and I mentor people and things like that because. I don't want anybody else to have to face the same challenges that I did. It didn't necessarily make me a better person or anything. It just made my journey longer and it made me miserable. Yes, we've been there. It's almost like that for our podcasting journey. It's been like that for our cybersecurity careers. I remember when Chris and I first met, we didn't know anyone at the company for the most part. One of those organizations that a lot of people didn't want to help, whether they were on the security team or another team. I think we still face those big walls today of, Just accessibility, feeling included, feel like you belong there. What has been the thing that's been most exciting for you today when you're looking at all of the work that you're putting out, whether it be content, conferences, speaking, 
What excites you the most today? I wish I had time to put out more content. I've been really bad about that lately. So definitely not that because I'm just tearing my hair out trying to find time to write blogs and put videos out and things and can't seem to find enough hours in the day to do it. I do love speaking and I especially love speaking to audiences that aren't cybersecurity audiences. I recently got to speak at a church that flown out to a Unitarian church in New Hampshire. And I got to speak to their congregation because they had a lecture on just educating their congregation and the community members on the world and important topics. And cybersecurity was one of those. And it was so fun. Those people, they had great questions about like how to keep their data safe and what threats critical infrastructure really faces from a cybersecurity perspective. And it was wonderful talking to that audience because it was totally novel to them and they wanted to learn. Like cybersecurity, we can be in our, our little bubble and just talking to each other in that sphere over and over and over again about the same stuff. And it's fun and I like doing those talks too, but the talks where I get to go out to like universities or to business audiences that aren't in IT, things like that, or even just my local community. That's what I love doing. I really enjoy that. And what about it? It really stands out to you because Ron and I have been doing that a lot lately. We've been on other folks show, maybe they're focused on business or finance and they bring us in to speak about security. And we get a chance to boil it down to its most basic units and tell fun stories along the way. But what about being able to communicate that to a general audience has been appealing for you? The fact that you're teaching them something entirely novel. And I'm a person, I like to call myself a lifelong learner. I love to learn how things work. I love to learn how things are made and how different cultures function, different languages, things like that. And you know, it's enjoyable to me to find other people out there who want to learn about an entirely new topic and expose themselves to its problems and how it impacts society and things like that. So I appreciate that. And I definitely want to share that knowledge to people who want to learn because cybersecurity is important and it impacts everything around us all the time. I almost feel sometimes when you do cybersecurity at an organization, it's a lot different than an individual practicing security, cybersecurity. What have you noticed or what have you explained to be some of those things that an individual can do? I'm interested for myself. I focus mainly for the enterprise and big organizations. I do some stuff for myself, but what have you recommended to like your community? Yeah, so a lot of it is here's some things you can do. Pick the one that will work for you that is the most possible for your life that you will actually do. So one of those things is threat modeling and actually thinking about the threats that you face. I talked through that with audiences a lot. I did, a, I got to go to Los Alamos and that was really exciting too. I get to speak some really cool places, but I spoke there about threat modeling and determining your own threat model and how important that is because everybody's threat model is different. The risks that you deal with on a daily basis change based on your relationship and where you live and where you're traveling and what you're doing that day and who you work for and what you just bought and things like that, that all changes the threats that you face and how you have to respond to them. So your threat model could be totally different from your neighbors. And that might mean that you should use different smart devices or think about installing an alarm system differently. Something might make you more secure and them less secure. So really having those personal introspective self-discussions about hey, what threats do I really face and what does that mean to me and my cybersecurity is really important. So that's one thing. And then in terms of technical controls, trying to get everybody to use a reputable standalone password manager application, it would be fantastic if everybody did that because we're trying to get 
over the problem of password reuse. Password mm-hmm. reuse just now is just such a self-destructive thing. Everybody's doing credential stuffing. Once your password gets stolen from one site, it gets tried on every other site very, very rapidly. So if you're reusing credentials, you're going to be up the creek. And so password managers are a great solution for that. They're not necessarily fully intuitive to everybody, but they can be a big time saver once you do learn how to use them. But if you can't do that, I always tell the audience, hey, if this is too much, if you're like, I don't understand this password manager thing, for a lot of people's threat model, just writing passwords down in a notebook and using a strong different one for every site makes a huge difference. So even just have a paper notebook and then multi-factor authentication too. We're trying to get everybody to turn that on. SMS isn't great, but it's better than nothing. (laughs) Yeah, we got a chance to chat with Director Jen Easterly about the work she's been doing. And she's been really focused on this more than a password movement, getting folks involved. And hey, as long as it's more than a password, like you're going to be all right, which I think is absolutely beautiful. We got to go deep into your experience with incident response. I did incident response for several different companies, but I really bit into incident response, I think around the Netflix time. I have to say like leading incidents and being incident commander is such an important role, especially for a company, but being able to do it for industrial controls, being able to do it for critical infrastructure, I'm sure is a beast unto itself. What are some of the marked differences between running incidents for your traditional IT environments versus OT? Yeah, so a lot of it has to do with the consequences involved. Sure, there's lots of legacy stuff and you're going to be doing forensics from 20 years ago, which is a big difference when everybody's used to EDR today. But The big functional philosophical difference is that everything comes down to real life consequences when you're talking about those systems. So they're doing something physical and kinetic in the real world. So that means that you could cause danger to life or limb by doing your security response that's worse than whatever the piece of malware or the adversary is doing. So you always have to be thinking about that. What are you trying to avoid happening to this industrial process? Can I cause it potentially during my incident response efforts or my cybersecurity efforts? What could the adversary potentially do? What are their mitigations to prevent that will be effective? So I really need to understand how the real world is going to be impacted at all times by what's going on in the computer space, in the digital space. And that's a huge shift in thinking. That means I need to have really good conversations with the engineers and the operators, and I need to be humble and listen to them. It's a different way of thinking, definitely. Hey everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me, or an IT or security pro, complexity is inevitable. And I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com slash Simone. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S I would imagine for an organization, maybe there is a new leader on deck that wants to hire some incident responders. They might not know what type of incident responder to hire, because I feel like sometimes we speak to incident response managers, directors like yourself, even practitioners and Sometimes it's almost like they're describing threat hunting or they're describing forensics or other areas that just involve a cybersecurity event or attack. In your world, where does incident response start and maybe where does it stop? 
it really depends on the size of your organization and what resources you have available to you for incident response. You have to define that though. It should be defined in your incident response plan. When do you declare an incident? And then when do you close it out? When is it now a restoration effort that's managed by IT or something? And personnel and staffing and organizational structure is going to vary by company. And you're going to have different answers to those things in every organization you're in. Who does the monitoring and detection? Is that different from the people who do the incident response? Do you have a third party retainer involved? Do you have a parent company or regulatory organizations involved? But the bottom line is you need to plan for this stuff in advance because there's no perfect defense against an incident. Everybody's vulnerable. You do your best to mitigate and avoid having a cybersecurity incident. There's only so much you can do. Eventually, you have to assume that you're going to have a cybersecurity incident and you need to answer those questions in advance because it's going to be a crisis and you're going to need to know, is it an incident yet? Who do we contact? Who's responsible for each phase of the incident? Who's responsible for keeping control of the incident? Things like that. When you look at your particular role now, would you say that you're more in the people management side? Are you ensuring folks get to the right jobs at the right time? Are you more on site? Are you filling the role of incident commander? What is the makeup of your job these days? I'm in the luxurious situation where I'm in between the two. I manage a team, certainly. I have no ambitions to get promoted anytime soon. I enjoy the spot where I'm in, where I'm still highly technical, but I'm a people manager. And of course, my first priority is my people doing well and being successful and being safe in their jobs. That's my first and foremost, my job. And when you become a manager, you do have to, not to disappoint anybody, you do have to be a good people manager and you have to be cognizant of your people's passions and interests and problems and successes and their goals in the future. That's part of your job as well as where they fit into a team and their personalities. And that's tough, but definitely not for everybody. But yeah, I do a little bit of both right now. Love it. And obviously without giving away any confidential information or anything, what has been one of those situations where you felt like everything was clicking together for you? Because I'm sure just from your background and all your experiences, maybe even some things from martial arts, sometimes things have to just align for us to be in the right place at the right time and take the right action. Is there an incident that you felt everything just came together and that you were really proud of? I've had some cases where I had to really, really, really think outside the box. I've had cases, certainly in industrial situations, where the root cause was not cyber, but I was called in because they didn't know. And having enough of a background, I fixed airplanes, I worked in manufacturing, I have a degree in electronics, I was in the Air Force, so I've got a a wide background in a lot of things. Oh, my degree's in network engineering too, so wide variety of things. And there's been a few cases where the cause of something everybody thought was an adversary in a major cybersecurity incident was something off the wall and different maintenance related or human related. And I was able to identify that problem just because I had a lot of experience with weird things breaking and <laughs> weird things happening in all these different technologies. So yeah, there's been a few cases that I can't really go into details of, but where I've walked into a situation and I've gone within the first 15 minutes and just stared at what was happening. And this isn't a hacker. Okay, let me tell you what's actually happening here to the system because I've seen it before or I know enough about these oddball things that I can put together that, hey, this is not a cybersecurity incident. It's this configuration of this bizarre configuration of the system that happened when you lost power, yada, yada, yada. Because like a mouse ran across the keyboard, that type of stuff. (laughs) I have cases like that all the time because industrial systems are legacy 
and they're weird and they're in dirty environments, in high and low temperature environments, things like that. So they face a lot of problems that aren't necessarily normal IT problems. A lot of factors that go into it. One of my earliest memories, and this is a crazy memory to to bring up, but I was going on a walk with my sisters and we were walking down the street and there was someone that was taking their groceries from outside of their house to the inside and they got all the way done, but they left their keys in the trunk. And me being, I was probably around six or seven at the time, I thought there was a lot of keys on that keychain. So I went up and I grabbed the keys. I ultimately gave the keys back because I, I couldn't drive. I couldn't. I had no use for them. But I would imagine that's what we face as security practitioners a lot. We go through a lot of work of transporting data, securing that data within a vehicle, whether it be our security program or something else. But if you forget to take the keys out, it's all for naught. What have you found to be the example or analogy where people leave the keys in far too often and that creates an incident? In industrial, it's going to be unique too. During COVID, a lot of things were connected to the internet because people desperately needed to access things remotely right then. And repeatedly, we've seen cases of things popping up in Shodan and getting attacked, exploited, etc. that were never supposed to be connected directly to the internet. But somebody just needed TeamViewer or they needed RDP right then and it got hooked up. So there's a lot of that, unfortunately. We go into an environment and they're like, it's air-gapped, it's air-gapped, it's air-gapped. I see maybe one truly air-gapped industrial network a year. Things are very rarely air-gapped. And usually there ends up being some critical connection between the internet and the industrial environment or the enterprise network and the industrial environment. That's the point of intrusion or infection. A lot of that, bad segmentation. And then it's hard to choose really can't fault people for not patching in industrial environments because it's a vendor controlled thing and it can impact the operation of the system and the warranty and things like that. But bad architecture, bad segmentation causes a lot of problems. You've got to mitigate. You can't just ignore these environments because they're legacy. You have to think about how to mitigate potential intrusions through other means, good passive detection and good access control and good architecture in terms of segmenting the network from the enterprise and from the internet and different parts of it from one another. So those are things you can potentially actually do. You just have to really think outside the box. But yeah, I see a lot of problems with that all the time. When we do incident response, a lot of times as the incident commander, we're thinking what is worst case scenario and what is most likely scenario. So we hedge our bets for both. I love movies. And when you watch a movie, and I'm sure you watch a cheesy hacker movie, you got some hacking group that can shut down everything across the world and and all that stuff. And that's not super realistic. But there are definitely things that we've seen in the recent past that had serious damages or may cause serious issues for a lot of people. With The things that you've seen out in the wild, do you see a potentiality for there to be this almost like Armageddon level type of attack against OT that may be in the realm of plausibility? Yeah. So a couple comments on that. First of all, we hear a lot about people talking about like the grid being taken down in the United States. And as more people are becoming aware, there is not the grid in the United States. We have three grids. So Texas, East and West, they are incredibly complex. They're built up of many, many operators for generation and transmission and distribution. And they're all running different technologies and they all have different operator teams. So like actually doing something like that 
requires a lot of coordination and a lot of knowledge of all these different operators. It's an incredibly heavy lift. It takes a lot of resources to even think about taking down a portion of it. So that's really pretty implausible. And the other problem is that we always think about power because in the United States, the vast majority of us, that's the only life critical utility that we are used to seeing go down. So we're very fortunate, unlike some places, there are places in the United States and a lot of places around the world where people lose other utilities. So they lose sewage or they lose clean drinking water or they never have it. They lose transportation, things like that's totally different. And we don't think about those things in the United States, what it would be like to not suddenly not have clean drinking water for an extended period of time or not know about it and slowly being contaminated by it. There's certainly places in the United States that have had that happen, unfortunately, like Flint. But a lot of people don't think about that because it hasn't happened to them. They don't have personal experience with it. Same with like sewage coming up your drains or not functioning. Those are a little bit scarier situations to me because those are much less resourced utilities. In a lot of cases, they're municipal and People don't think about it, so they don't dedicate a lot of time and effort and concern to those things going wrong. There's much more insidious ways to impact society, even in small geographic areas that would be very impactful and concern me a lot. So the big booms, less than the slow, insidious things that could be done to region or a metropolitan area. Yeah, I could see that. Even with gas and oil, I would imagine that there's big opportunities or big consequences when we're not looking at security the right way. Yeah, it's troubling. It's definitely troubling. So I got to ask, what are you looking at into the future? I've been asked quite a bit like, hey, Ron, what kind of tech are you focused on? What kind of things are you hoping to create? I have my own bag of tricks. But what about you when you're looking at the next generation of security? The realm of industrial forensics, digital forensics, is very much unexplored still. There's such a huge landscape of devices and verticals there. How to do forensics on all the varieties of PLCs and engineering workstation software and even low-level devices. That's daunting and it's a huge task. The interesting challenge that I'm seeing right now, though, is that some of our traditional forensic skills that we use in industrial are dying out. A lot of people who go through degree programs and get entry-level cybersecurity positions now only learn how to use EDR. So it's very point and click. And they're no longer learning how to do like traditional disk forensics, traditional memory forensics. So it's not even a matter of teaching people tools. They're not learning the fundamental thought processes. So that's a challenge that we're going to face in the future. But it's also exciting on the other hand, because That means on the enterprise side of things, which I don't have the luxury of working in, things really are getting better. Technologies really are improving. EDR and XDR and things like that are doing amazing things for cybersecurity. New versions Mm -hmm. of Windows are building in amazing new levels of cybersecurity. So things are changing quickly and I think in a lot of ways for the better. Things are changing quickly and it does seem like things are getting better despite all the things that you see in the media, despite all the attacks that you see that are really, really public. When you look at all the things that you've done in your life, whether you're talking about martial arts and teaching other people about martial arts or looking at cybersecurity and teaching a church or even the work that you're doing today in incident response, it all seems to center on this concept of knowledge, the cultivation of knowledge and then the dissemination of knowledge. And I feel like more people are starting to step into that space, that space that you occupied almost 10 years ago and continue to do so. Do you have a piece of advice 
for everyone out there in cybersecurity, because one of the things I think is super important is that even if you're relatively new in cyber, you are still able to teach others, whether it's teaching people in your house, teaching folks that are right behind you in that phase. What is that piece of advice that you would have for everyone out there to share more knowledge and make this entire industry a bit better? Find your niche. You can be a generalist for a while and it's always fine to learn, change that niche and learn about something else. But it can get daunting right now because there's so much to learn and there are so many different areas of cybersecurity, which are super interesting. Unfortunately, when we do talks and interviews and things, we only talk about the cool parts of our jobs. So everything looks neat and everything looks cool and you want to learn about all of it and you want to do all the jobs to learn and not get overwhelmed and not burn out and feel like you're contributing when you're trying to decide what to give talks on or write blogs on. It really helps to find an area to focus on and that could be like vertical or it could be area of cybersecurity research or practice. Just find something for a while that is something you want to focus on. And you can choose that by reading or by watching talks, listening to podcasts, listening to us inanely tweet, whatever works for you. But pick an area and then find mentorship in that and try to focus for a couple years on a particular area. You can always change your mind later on, just like degrees, just like training programs. But it's going to help you a lot to focus for a little while. Excellent. Leslie, thank you so much for jumping on the mics with us. Really appreciate the conversation. I got to say, for anyone that's listening that doesn't follow Leslie yet, I would highly recommend it. You've probably already learned from her, just like we have. So we've dropped Leslie's information into the show notes for everyone to stay up to date with you and all the great things that you've got going on. Thank you again, and we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.